not only has the movement created this incredible momentum for divestment, but it's spread to other strategies targeting the fossil fuel industry, including calling on back banks to stop financing new fossil fuels, insurers to stop underwriting fossil fuels, litigation targeting the industry for damages, calls for governments to stop subsidizing the industry, and politicians to stop taking money from fossil fuel companies or their executives so that we can get government to regulate for the public good, not for corporate profit. A decade ago, hopes that world leaders would rally around meaningful policies to combat climate change were at a low. The 2009 United Nations Climate Conference in Copenhagen had ended with little to show for it, and the U.S. Senate failed to pass a major climate bill the following year. Then, in 2011, the first divestment campaigns struck up on college campuses. Divestment is the process of selling subsidiary assets, investments, or divisions of a company for financial, ethical, or political objectives. In the climate space, divestment is all about shifting capital out of fossil fuels, the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions from human activity worldwide. In January 2014, 17 foundations with nearly $2 billion in assets under management committed to divest their portfolios from fossil fuel companies and to invest a greater portion of their assets into the new clean energy economy under the banner of the Divest Invest Philanthropy. By September of that year, the group had more than quadrupled to 71 foundations with $4.2 billion in combined assets under management. Divestment emerged as a way for those frustrated with public policy to take a more active role in influencing and leading the transition away from fossil fuels. The concept isn't new, but it's gaining momentum. There are new headlines almost weekly about how various institutions from sovereign wealth funds to state pensions, insurance companies to asset managers are moving their money out of the fossil fuel industry. The movement is also evolving and expanding into other areas of the financial system. But there are some important questions to ask about this trend. For one thing, does divestment actually have an impact on reducing greenhouse gas emissions? It's not entirely clear. While it makes life difficult for coal, oil, and gas companies, divestment may not meaningfully reduce fossil fuel demand or the use of these fuels by people all over the world, which has prompted debate around whether it's better to fight the world's oil and gas giants or push them to transition and decarbonize their businesses. Meanwhile, there's a separate but related flurry of activity on the invest side of the equation and moving money into socially responsible and environmentally friendly solutions. The UN defines green financing as increasing the level of financial flows from banking, microcredit, insurance, and investment from the public, private, and not-for-profit sectors into sustainable development priorities. In 2018, at least $30 trillion of funds were held in sustainable or green investments, up 34% from 2016, according to a report by the Global Sustainable Investment Alliance. But there's no agreed-upon definition for what counts as a green and sustainable investment, and there are concerns that wide definitions aren't meaningful. The role of governments, meanwhile, can't be ignored. While the divestment movement gained momentum out of frustration over the slow pace of policy action, governments set the rules for the financial system and control federal purse strings, all of which can have a major impact on how money moves in and out of the fossil fuel industry. Especially now, as governments seek to craft stimulus bills to boost their economies in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
All of this brings us to what we're covering in this episode of Political Climate and several upcoming episodes of our show in a new miniseries we're calling Ditched, Fossil Fuels, Money Flows, and the Greening of Finance. I'm Julia Piper, host of the Political Climate Podcast on Energy and Environmental Issues in America and Around the World, produced with support from the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm also a contributing editor for Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. In this setting, however, I'm really a student. I've spent most of my career in journalism reporting on climate policy and the clean energy industry. My focus has been largely on the electricity sector, so think solar power, energy efficiency, utility rates, electric vehicles, software to make the grid smarter, stuff like that. So if you're like me, you've been hearing terms like fossil fuel divestment, green finance, and reading the seemingly related news about using financial tools to combat climate change, but you don't really know if and how all these pieces are related. What's the motivation and what's the impact this is ultimately having on combating climate change? That may be because there's just a lot to track in this space. This month, for instance, major Australian insurer Suncor announced it will end any financing or insuring of the oil and gas industry by 2025, adding to the group's existing ban on support for new thermal coal projects. Earlier this year, BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, rocked the financial world with news from CEO Larry Fink that his firm would avoid investments in companies that present, quote, a high sustainability-related risk. In recent days, the Harvard University board made news when it gained new members who back fossil fuel divestment. Meanwhile, campaigns like Stop the Money Pipeline are keeping the pressure on the financial sector. But this conversation isn't only going in one direction. For instance, President Trump and Republican lawmakers are pushing back against banks that have announced they won't finance oil drilling operations in the Arctic. And then in the next moment, oil giant BP announces more details of its own plan to reach net zero emissions by 2050, committing to halt oil and gas exploration in new countries, slash oil and gas production, and boost capital spending on low carbon energy tenfold to $5 billion a year. So again, there's a lot going on. And so my goal with this series is to connect some of the dots. I'm calling it ditched because it's a look at how and why money is moving out of fossil fuels. But that's not all it's about. I'll also look at what money is moving into, as well as related business practices and policies. The aim is to flesh out all of these pieces over a series of conversations with great guests. It'll be a journey. And so be sure to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts so that you can follow along. Episodes of the Ditched miniseries will be published on Mondays over the next few weeks, in addition to our Thursday episodes. Admittedly, there is more to this topic than one miniseries can cover, but I hope these conversations serve as a valuable resource, and I'll share relevant links in the show notes to support further reading. Now, to officially kick things off, I'd like to share an interview with Ellen Dorsey, Executive Director of the Wallace Global Fund a private foundation focused on progressive social change in the fields of environment, democracy, human rights, and corporate accountability. The Wallace Global Fund is a founding member of the Divest Invest Philanthropy that I mentioned at the outset of the show. The coalition now has more than 170 foundations committed to deploying their investments to address the climate crisis and accelerate the clean energy transition. Ellen is a leader of the movement. In 2016, she was awarded the inaugural Nelson Mandela Grassa Michelle Brave Philanthropy Award for launching the Divest Invest Philanthropy. She has also served on the board of numerous nonprofit organizations, including Greenpeace USA and Amnesty International USA. 
This conversation on divestment and investment was originally recorded at a virtual event hosted by the Sun Valley Institute and has been edited for clarity and flow. I hope you enjoy. Okay, great. Well, we are going to talk about divestment and investment in this conversation. And Ellen is the perfect person to talk to about all this, having 10 plus years, I think we were just saying that you've been focused specifically on this work. So there's a lot to talk about here, but I'd appreciate just getting a set of the stage, setting the stage with a bit of a summary of you know how this movement came to be, the divest invest movement. The Wallace Global Fund, where you're executive director, has been instrumental in supporting fossil fuel divestment in the US and around the world. It's a leading member of the Divest Invest Coalition. So give us a brief history of how the movement emerged and how you describe where it sits today. Great. Thanks, Julia. And you know, it, it has, I was thinking it has been 10 years because it was really the context of 2010 when there was a failure to get a global agreement on climate in Copenhagen and when myriad efforts to pass legislation nationally around the world failed and in the U.S., in particular Waxman-Markey, you know, it left a really demoralized climate advocacy community. There wasn't a, cl- a grassroots climate movement and really, the the governments were failing to act at scale, commensurate with the settled and known science, and so it was it was clear that we needed to do something different. Foundations, my sector, were spending millions to support policy work, advocacy, educating about the science, and you know, act, youth the, those youth activists that existed were being bussed down to lobby for public policy du jour, and really the fight needed to turn onto the industry itself, the industry that was spending tens of millions to uh, spread disinformation about climate change, to lobby for inaction, etc. So students began to take a play from the anti-apartheid movement's playbook when the U.S. government refused to impose sanctions on the apartheid state. Activists, uh, faith and youth activists started um, calling on institutions to to withdraw their investments from the companies doing business in South Africa. So in 2011, the first student campaigns got cooked up. There were about eight campuses. Um, It spread to 40 quickly. Then uh, as a combination of the brilliant work of Carbon Tracker and the brilliant advocacy of Bill McKibben, the call to divest was launched and 40 campuses went to 400 overnight. It began spreading and it spread to faith groups and pension funds and cities and philanthropies out of the U.S. and around the world. Today, 10 years later, um, there's now $14 trillion in assets under management that have publicly committed to divest from uh, fossil fuels and, and many, many more. And I think what I would just say as what's sort of the state of the movement today, not only has the movement created this incredible momentum for divestment, but it spread to other strategies targeting the fossil fuel industry, including calling on back banks to stop financing new fossil fuels, insurers to stop underwriting fossil fuels, litigation targeting the industry for damages, calls for governments to stop subsidizing the industry, and politicians to stop taking money from fossil fuel companies or their executives so that we can get government to regulate for the public good, not for corporate profit. 
Yeah, there's a lot of elements to this, a lot of different areas you can go at it. I guess, what would you say is driving this? I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a moral imperative. I know there's an economic one ex- as well, but to, to what extent does it break, or break down along those two lines, would you say? Well, I, I would say quite frankly, early on, it was the ethical imperative that drove the first campaigns that if you were invested in fossil fuels, you own climate change. You know, you could not distinguish yourself from the impacts of your investments. So ethically, it was no longer okay to be invested in an industry driving the problem and refusing to tender business plans consistent with the science. But in, and there was some sense that divestment could play a financial role and weaken the industry, but it was mostly an ethical call for action. But in that, you know, ensuing decade, We've seen the growth in the clean energy economy and the, the growing financial um, s- stability of, of renewable energy. And so you start to begin to see the ethical and financial imperatives align. And when you think about the, the stranded asset risk analysis that, you know, nine years or eight years ago seemed uh, kind of a, a, a fringe notion, It is now so clear when fossil fuels have been the worst performing sector for the last six years at the level of treasuries, it's not going to return. So I would say it's also a fiduciary imperative. Mm. Investors have been warned. You know these are risky um, investments in your portfolio. And if you're still holding them and losing money, I think you have some real um, vulnerability to your clients or to your investors that you haven't moved on it. Yeah, I think we saw BP just in recent months at a major write down and they're not going to pursue some of their projects. Just very laid bare there what's happening. It's interesting because I've covered the clean energy sector for a while and we're only still seeing those oil majors at least dip a toe into the clean energy sector. So it's clearly more you know, needs to happen in, in, on that side of the coin. Um, just on the public perception and on the moral imperative, rather, what are the lines? What is the framing that works, do you think? I'm imagining, you know, these are business people. What resonates with them when you're having those kinds of conversations that you need to do this on the, for the planet? Well, I just want to go back, you know, to your last point about those, the fossil fuel companies and mm-hmm. their investments in renewables. There's been fantastic research that uh, by groups like Influence Map and others that show that the industry is actually spending more on marketing those green investments. Yeah. Actually, they are making in alternatives. So, you know, it's, it's important to go to scratch a little bit beneath the surface with the industries and investors too. investors that are committing to divest or to invest in green solutions. They need to be held accountable that they're actually implementing that on on the messaging. You know, I, I think at this stage, the messaging um, in the early days, I think, was very much about the ethical imperative and that we needed the industry to match the science. The industry's practices weren't matching the science. That's so clear now. And I think the arguments are just getting stronger and stronger at this ne- nexus of ethics and returns and financial performance. I mean, really? What? <laughs> motivating you to trade off your social legitimacy by being invested in fossil fuels today and lose your shirt. Like, it doesn't make sense. Uh, So 
what would you say is maybe a big moment, a defining moment when a financial institution or a bank or whatever big player you want to point to, you know, made an announcement that you thought, okay, we've really got something here. This is a moment where like we've got traction and it can be recent or, or a little while ago, but I'm curious what you thought was a moment you got a real foothold. I think it really has to be when the Rockefeller Brothers Fund made the public announcement that they were going to divest from fossil fuels. And a little behind the the story, the behind the scenes story on that, when um, when Ban Ki Moon um, established announced he was going to do a high level climate um, summit, which was intended to build momentum towards a successful global agreement, ultimately in Paris. Um, the activists were mobilizing, the People's Climate March was announced, there was all this attention, and the divestment activists were working furiously. And in fact, we had a meeting in our office with some of the heads of the different organizations and everyone was strategizing like, when do we go public that we have enough divested that we're credible? We're like, oh, it's gotta be like 30 to 50 billion or it's not gonna be credible. And so we made the decision it, it was time to go big around Ban Ki-moon's summit, and we made the first global divestment announcement. It actually was taken into the UN summit, and we lined up some new announcements. Divest Invest Philanthropy had already been launched um, maybe six months before with about 17 foundations. We had another 55 that were going to join, and the Rockefeller Brothers Fund was ready to announce. And we knew, because they had been working on it, and we knew that it would they're the heirs of Standard Oil. They have been in, had been engaging for decades in trying to get Exxon, Exxon Mobil to move on climate. Mm -hmm. And for them, to, members of the family to come out and say, we're done. It's not, they're not going to move. There's, it's not okay to be invested and shareholder engagement isn't working. So we knew there'd be press, but it lasted for literally months. In fact, it still, I think many of the members of the family and the Rockefeller philanthropic institutions have done that. Then I would say, you know, World Council of Churches, the support of Desmond Tutu, all in the early days really assisted the movement. And now the mayors of London, New York, the financial centers of the world, big pension funds, it's just the dominoes just keep yeah. on, you know, falling. Just recently, Deutsche Bank announced that it will stop uh, financing drilling in the Arctic under public pressure. So, yeah, the, the news keeps rolling in. So I want to ask now about the invest side of things, the other side of the ledger. How do you think that philanthropies and other impact investors, and I guess investors overall, how can they support climate solutions? How can they move more money into things like clean energy technology and other sustainability initiatives? You know, early on, it, I, I think we were very aware in philanthropy that it was important that we also call on um, investors to commit to scaling renewables, to invest in clean tech and renewables, that we needed to accelerate the transition. And that by accelerating the transition, you're also making the renewable side of the equation stronger, further weakening the fossil fuels. So, Divest Invest was always, for me, a robust theory of change. And, you know, five, six, seven years ago, I think it was Ceres that put out the first report saying that institutional investors needed to put at least 5% of their portfolio into renewables and clean tech if we were going to scale in time to be consistent with limiting to at two degrees Celsius warming. 
that remains true. We still need to be investing. And I think investors need to be um, conscious of what the level of investment is in their portfolio. But now in the context of the global change that we're experiencing, the global economic crisis um, driven by the pandemic and the, the in, you know, encroaching deadline, we have a decade left to fundamentally turn things around. We need to be thinking even more broadly than just investing in climate solutions. This really is a moment for profound system change. We need to be investing in the new energy economy that incorporates racial and social and gender justice alongside the climate justice. We need to be thinking about new ownership models of energy systems and other climate regenerative ag and other climate solutions. So for me, any investor today needs to be thinking about investing in the solutions, but with full ESG integration in your portfolio, doing climate, racial, gender, justice audits of your portfolio, you should have five to 10% of your portfolio in, in specific climate solutions. I think you need to be committing one to 5% of your portfolio to investing in local economies, job creation, community development. Think about how you can be a private investor investing alongside the public green new deals that are be, will be created. And then I think we also have to make sure that we leave no one behind in the energy transition. There's a billion plus people that don't have access to electricity now. We can leapfrog heavy grid infrastructure and reach them. So as investors, we need to be thinking through that lens of leaving no one behind. You still need to divest, obviously, but I think there's plenty of opportunities to engage industries other than the fossil fuel industry to decarbonize, to bring more resources into their communities, to create jobs, et cetera. So um, the changes in the world, we can't go on like they didn't happen. We need to be conscious about our role in, in creating the new energy economy, one that's just and prosperous for all. So what would you say is an example of that? What are some of the sustainability projects that the Wallace Global Fund is investing in? Um, one project we're involved in, we had supported the Standing Rock fight um, against the Dakota Access Pipeline. And in the context of um, interacting with um, the tribal government in that um, supporting that fight and discussing what their needs were, we learned that they had early stage plans to build a grid scale wind farm that would bring revenue that would be owned by the tribe and would bring revenue to the community, both to generate new renewable projects, but also for community development in one of the poorest communities. We heard that this is truly energy justice, given the Dakota pipeline fight. And this is the kind of model of the new energy economy that we need. And so we have been working with them over the last couple of years. It was very nascent. Now we're getting, it's getting uh, much closer. Um, but we've worked with the Sierra Club Foundation, some other foundations. We've put in some early stage pre-development capital. Now the wind studies have been done. The transmission line studies have been done. This is going to be a incredibly uh, successful project when it's built. Um, and we're working on an innovative impact investing model that will generate fair returns to the investors as opposed to 
strictly a market return that will enable more resources to go back into the community. There are other projects that are happening on Indigenous lands. There's the Navajo Solar Project. Um, I think it's really important that we think of our role not just in investing in large-scale renewables that will bring us you know, healthy returns, but that we really look at the areas where we can have a profound impact with oftentimes a small amount of capital that can build a, the kind of momentum that addresses racial and climate justice simultaneously. I want to flesh out the policy point. We are obviously still in this economic crisis created by the COVID-19 pandemic, and that has launched a bunch of discussions around economic stimulus bills. And many stakeholders in the U.S. and other countries, and perhaps more so in other countries, are talking specifically about green stimulus bills. So that means supporting the deployment of clean energy technologies, manufacturing these technologies, investing in research and development for these technologies, as well as sustainable farming practices and other other practices that are part of building back better and building back in a way that addresses both climate change and the economic troubles that we have today. In the U.S., however, a green net recovery has not become a reality. It's it's been brought up in a lot of think papers and things like that, but it does not yet have traction on Capitol Hill. Meanwhile, oil and gas drillers, coal companies, pipeline companies, refiners, and others have received between three and seven billion dollars in coronavirus aid from the U.S. government, according to the government's own filings. Fossil fuel companies are perfectly allowed to have this government support, but it has prompted a lot of pushback from environmentalists who say that investing billions of dollars into an industry that's polluting and causing the climate crisis is short-sighted and a bad use of public money. So where do the philanthropies jump in on the policy front, particularly now amid this broader discussion around a green recovery and what that looks like? Well, first of all, we can support advocacy with our grant making dollars. We can, you know, support the frontline organizations and the smart strategic advocacy organizations. Then they're working very effectively in um, calling for the kind of just and green recovery that we need. And there are also coalitions that are tracking the bailout money and are exposing the misuse of the bailout funds including going to uh, fossil fuel companies, and they need support. They need financial support to do what they're doing and to do it effectively. We can also use our advocacy voice. We are able to lift up our advocacy voice in broad ways um, without uh, targeting specific pieces of legislation. And all too often, I think philanthropy doesn't do that. And then we can use our voice as investors in shareholder engagement, et cetera. So um, I, I just think it's time for philanthropy, all foundations, their mission will be impacted by climate change. We are supporting um, activists to push governments and corporations to declare a climate emergency. What would it look like if philanthropists declared a climate emergency? First of all, I would argue you would need a systemic theory of change. You need to support movements. You need to move your money aggressively. And I would challenge you to start giving more. Because the reality is, if we know we have a decade left and you're staying at existing levels of giving, there's something wrong. Why are we holding back and hoarding our acorns for a colder winter? Could there be a colder winter than what we're living through right now with 40 million unemployed, a global pandemic, and 10 years left 
with storms and fires barreling down on us in this August, September timeframe. Give, give, give more. I'm not sure if it's officially part of the divestment movement, but the government clearly plays a key role here as an investor and as a money manager. And so a key element of this discussion is our government subsidies for fossil fuels. This is something that a lot of policymakers talk about, a lot of activists talk about, both here in the U.S. and, and around the world. According to the Environmental and Energy Study Institute, direct subsidies for the fossil fuel industry here in the U.S. are around $20 billion per year. So how are you and others in the divestment space thinking about the subsidy piece of this? On the fossil fuel subsidies, I mean, really the fundamental underlying theory of change behind the divestment movement from its origins was to strip the social license of the industry to operate. And with it then, to toxify the industry and free politicians to be able to actually act in the common good. And that would include ending subsidies to the industry, not using public funds, our dollars, to subsidize this industry. And I think that if you look at the youth movement, the youth movement that started this, the youth movement that went on to create the demand for a Green New Deal, the youth movement that's striking, they're all pushing on no support for the industry, public or private, no funds at all. Greta's most recent remarks are everyone must divest now, stop all the subsidies. You know, we've got to end this fossil fuel era. So I'll be frank. I don't think there is enough philanthropic dollars going to these fights, these fights against the fossil fuel industry. There's still way too much philanthropic money going to softer work rather than the hard-edged advocacy. And we need campaigners and grassroots activists to continue hammering on ending the fossil fuel industry. So the subsidies is a crucial issue, and we need to support those activists that are taking it on. Sticking with the invest piece, how do you think about investing in nature-based solutions? Most of my career has been spent covering the clean energy technology side of things, but I know that putting money into natural solutions is an area of growing interest in the world of green finance. So how do you think about this? I I am finding it extremely frustrating to hear, given the magnitude of the crises that we're in, that we're using refrains like build back better. I, I don't think we need to build back better. We need to fund, fundamentally transform our systems, our relationship with nature, the nature of our financial systems, frankly, the structure of capitalism globally. I mean, they're all integrated. And so, yes, redefining our relationship with nature is absolutely an essential part of that. So I'm not really feeling build back better right now. It's change and dramatic change now. And with the kind of lens that isn't just a nature lens, but also a nature and justice lens, it's absolutely time that we bring racial and gender justice into our analysis of corporate behavior and financial behavior. As I learn more about the divest invest movement and more broadly about the intersection of the financial world and climate action, I wonder, you know, who does what at what scale. So I know there are a lot of players in this space. So let's maybe just talk about investors. Philanthropies are one group, but there are other investors that need a return on their investment. And they're also dealing with different levels of funding, different balance sheets. Some are investing 
you know, millions, multiple millions, billions. So who does what, when, how, <laughs> how do you break that down? Well, we have to ascertain who we are as investors. Philanthropy, universities, there are endowments that are part of mission-driven institutions. We receive charitable tax status to serve the public good. I think there's an, a strong argument to be made that our investments shouldn't undercut the public good <laughs> um, if we, in fact, are charitable institutions. But even institutions who are, th this is the system change, we need to change the short-termism, the, the uh, shareholder primacy as opposed to a stakeholder model. And these are the kinds of changes that need to happen. But even an existing institutional investor that is, you know, in this model of the the shareholder returns, I, I think we need to be thinking much more creatively about how the returns of our portfolio can also be balanced. Right now, imagine if every investor committed 1% into local communities for job creation and they're structured in revolving loan funds or 5% and you get a fixed asset, asset rate return. How is that not a prudent, in, maybe it's a little riskier in the projects, but you're getting the expected returns when you look at the whole portfolio's return. So I think we need to be constantly challenging the assumptions that drive the existing model while we push for change in the model itself to go from that shareholder to stakeholder, to go from short-term to long-term, et cetera. So you mentioned at the outset that banks are one of the fronts of the divestment movement fight. So anyone who's seen Jane Fonda and the group Firedale Fridays will probably know that that's a focus of their efforts is targeting big banks and, and having people move their money out of those banks. Why is this a growing area of focus? Banks have massively increased their financing for coal, oil, and gas since the Paris Agreement was adopted in 2015. Think about that. Between 2016 and 2019, 35 international banks, including Chase, Wells, Fargo, Citibank, collectively poured $2.7 into the fossil fuel industry. Let that sink in. That is since Paris. If you're banking with them, if you have credit accounts with them, then you are investing in the fossil fuel industry and in new fossil fuel projects that will lock in clim climate impacts and shoot us past the 1.5 degree. So it's absolutely crucial that we take on the banks and also take on the insurers that are insuring these projects. So you have the ability, either as an individual or as an institution, to first engage your banks and call on them to stop financing fossil fuels. And when, if and when they don't, you walk away, you cut up that credit card, and they begin to feel the pressure. They will stop investing in those fossil fuel companies. I am certain of that. They just haven't felt the heat as much, but there is a campaign called Stop the Money Pipeline that's been launched and in a very short, this year, and in a very short term, it's pressuring JP Morgan Chase and others. And I'm absolutely confident that when we protest outside the banks, we cut up the cards, we get investors and, and uh, account holders to go into their annual meetings, you're gonna start to see change fast. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now. We covered a lot of ground. Ellen, thanks so much. Well, that is our first episode in the Ditched Podcast miniseries. I hope you enjoyed it. 
I also apologize for some of the technical issues I had with my audio. Sorry if you picked up on that. On a positive note, we've got some great guests and content coming up, so be sure to subscribe to Political Climate so you can catch all ditched episodes. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, pretty much anywhere you like to listen, so hit subscribe and follow along. Also, please reach out with feedback on social media. We're on Twitter at poly underscore climate and on Instagram with the same handle. You can also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn by simply searching for political space climate. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll tune in next time.